Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, welcome back to another edition of the Talking Metal podcast. We have a great show for you today. We got Mark Hunter from Chimera. And this guy has been on a journey, man. He's had uh, so many great years with his band, but he's also had some years where he struggled with actually maybe a lifetime of struggling with mental issues. And he has uh, taken the brave step to do a documentary, a short documentary, which I thought was an excellent watch. It's, uh, you know, I think it's under 30 minutes. I highly recommend it. It is a great watch. It's called Down Again, and and Mark Hunter from Chimera is going to talk to us about about that and about a lot of other things. So stay tuned for that. We also have Chris Impelitary, a great guitar player who I've admired for many, many years. He is here to talk about his new album with Impelitary, and we have Jake Ely, legendary guitar player known for his work with Ozzy Osbourne and Badlands. And of course, the Red Dragon Cartel. Uh, long time coming for this. I've, lo- I've tried for years to get an interview with Jakey e. Lee, and he did not disappoint. This is a good interview. We get his opinion on a lot of different stuff. We get him talking about the new album that is on the way from Red Dragon Cartel. So definitely support Red Dragon Cartel and Jakey e. Lee and listen to their music. I like to listen to music on uh, you know the streaming services, and I had been doing Spotify for a while, and then I was doing this Amazon thing. But the one that I'm hooked on now is YouTube Music. It's really awesome. I hope you guys have tried it. But if you haven't, let me just try to sell you on it a little bit because YouTube Music is a new app that combines everything you'd expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube. And it, you know, it just brings it all to life. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. I'm so happy they're finally doing it that way. Uh, you can get music wherever you want. Even if you're offline, you got it right there on your phone, on your iPad. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's great stuff. YouTube Music Premium. You got to check it out. Just go download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. No cost. They just want you to, you know, they want to introduce it to you for free. And you're going to love it. You will not be disappointed. And after your 30-day trial, you can just pay $9.99 per month. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, here we go. Talking Metal, episode 781. Hi, I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. On this episode, we're going to talk some rock, some metal, and anything else we feel like. We're also going to jam some tunes, have a drink, 
and share some honest opinions. Thanks for listening to the Talking Metal Podcast. Let's get things started. This is the Sean Baker Orchestra with Which Way to Radio Land. little Sean Baker Orchestra. Go buy that full track on iTunes or listen to it on Spotify or listen to it on YouTube Music Premium. That is the Sean Baker Orchestra with Which Way to Radioland, a track that we use here on Talking Metal frequently. So good. Such good stuff. Uh, Sean Baker has been such a, a longtime Talking Metal family member. We love the guy. Sean, hope you're doing well. Let's get into my interview right off the bat here with Chris Impelitary. He's going to tell us all about the new album. We're going to talk some rock, talk some metal, and talk about his history as a musician and the history of his band. Here we go. This is Run For Your Life.
song right there, Run For Your Life, off the brand new album, The Nature of the Beast by Impelitary. And on the line with me right now, Chris Impelitary. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me. The new album sounds awesome. We just heard the track Run For Your Life, and you guys are back with another great one in full form. And let's uh, let's talk about the new record. Where was it recorded? Um, well, we recorded the brunt of the record in Los Angeles. Uh, we used Energy Studios, um, which is a really well-known studio. Um, that's actually technically in the Valley. Right. Um, okay. And a lot of mega bands, I mean, they all use it. It's a very big room, vintage gear. It's just, it's fantastic. Really for, especially if you're trying to capture more of a live performance from the band, which is really what we try to go for versus making music on computers, right? Um, so the most of it, like I said, was there. We did, we did a lot of vocal stuff as well in Florida, so kind of all over the place. And, and I know you're originally from Connecticut, but where do you where do you reside nowadays? Where's where's your home? Um, sure, well, I have a couple houses, but my main home is actually in an area called Westlake Village, California. Okay, it's um for people on the East Coast, they don't know where that is. It's I usually tell people it's Malibu because it's really instead of being on the beach, you're up in the mountain area. Right. But it's basically Malibu. Right. Gotcha. Cool. And the album, of course, you have Rob Rock on vocals, your longtime vocalist and James on bass, two guys you've been working with for a long time. Who's handling the drums and percussion on the record? On this record, the brunt of it was done with John Detty, who did our last record, Venom. Okay. You know, and he did a great job. I mean, John, is he's done a lot of bands, Slayer and, and so forth. But, you know, John, even on Venom, I mean, he's really like a side guy. He was never really a full band member. Um, so we also use Patrick um, Johansson, who's also playing with us. Cool. And will you be going out and doing live dates? Or is there a tour scheduled? Yes. Well, right now we are scheduling dates. Um, I think most, <laughs> especially within Pelletary, most people know we tend to focus literally on Asia. So we do all of the Japan, Korea, all of that stuff. And then we do a lot of continental Europe. Um, we are definitely trying to do the U.S. finally. Um, it's Good. been a challenge, um, especially, yeah, I mean, we're trying to, we're in that fine line of, Overseas, we're really blessed. We play huge venues, you know. I mean, even the last show we did, we headlined um, a thing called the Busan Rock Festival, and I think we did like 90,000 people. Wow. And we have pretty large productions for that. So in the U.S., the problem has been we don't want to ever be in a club, you know. Right. So the question is how do we convince the promoters we can bring in people? That's kind of the issue with our touring here in the U.S., just in case anybody wants to know. Right. And are you considering like a package deal or do you prefer to go out on your own? What What are you looking at as far as a potential well, we'll look at anything that's yeah. Well, we have to look at anything that's financially viable. I right. mean, you know, for us, we our comfort level, I mean, look, I have to be a realist. You know, in the U.S., I know overseas we can play arenas and we, we play really large festivals and all that. U.S. promoters are going to look at me like I'm on crack if we ask for that, right? They're going to be right. like, we're not even sure you can put in three people, never mind 5,000 people. Um, so in order to play bigger venues, yeah, I would definitely do a package, but it's really up to the promoters. You know, that that's gotcha. the, the kind of the, the misnomer that most people don't understand is that we can't control it. I promise I'll play. If they invite us, we will come, but it's up to the promoters. We can't force them to invite us. 
you know, you mentioned the Asian market and that the popularity is really strong for you there. I, I see that not only with you guys, but with a lot of guitar players who are just monster players, technically proficient and, you know, have have so much talent on the guitar. Why does that part of the world tend to have so much respect for what you do as an artist and what these other guitar players do as an artist, maybe more so even than some other parts of the world. Well, Mark, for me personally, this is just a theory. It's not theorem. I can't prove this. It's just kind of uh, just an assumption I have. Um, let me start here. You know, Japan and certain parts of Asia. Yeah, we've, we've done really well. And I have over the years go, why is that? I mean, we're no better than anybody else, you know, it's just, what is it that we do differently? And I thought about it, especially in Japan, because, you know, we've sold a few million records now and just in that marketplace. And I think about it in perspective, I think, and so this is kind of my theory. If gotcha. you look at the Japanese culture, they're very well educated and they're very disciplined. So if you think about the way I play guitar or people that play guitar in this kind of genre or this category, you know, it takes a lot of discipline, right? We have to spend eight hours a day noodling on the guitar and shredding and whatever, right? All day right. long, we have to master music theory and all the technicalities that come along with this. And I think because that translates into our music, right? Um, when I do my solos, even though I consider ourselves more like a, you know, a melodic thrash metal band or speed metal or whatever, you know, a lot of the stuff, the solos, they're heavily influenced. I listen to a lot of classical and not because guys like Ingve and Uli Roth, but because I love it. So I'm really influenced probably more so than anything by Antonio Vivaldi, my favorite, great, you know, virtuoso, but composer as well. And I put a lot of that kind of influence into my soloing and even the riffs at times. So anyways, long story short, I think because we have that really disciplined nature and um, it, it, obviously it takes a lot of education and practice, I think they appreciate that. Right. You know, versus like, you know, if you were the Ramones, which is a really cool punk, you know, rock band, that's a little bit, you know, dated, but you kind of get the idea of it. That's yeah. Probably something they're not going to migrate towards. Totally, totally. And, you know, talking about guitar playing and let's talk a little bit about guitars. You have a very cool Charvel Custom Shop Legacy model, the Blood Splatter guitar, right? Is that what, what they call it? Yeah, that that's correct. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's a Charvel legacy. I mean, there's a weird story to it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us about it. We'd love to hear the story behind it. Okay. Well, I started using Charvels during the Venom tour. I mean, again, I had used Charvels when I was a kid, believe it or not, in the bar bands with Rob before we ever even had a record deal. And I used old Charvels. We're talking about like the Fender headstock, no Floyd Roses, no locking tremolos, vintage, kind of like what Van Halen played. His very right. first guitar technically is the Charvel neck, boogie body. So those were the guitars I used. And so I started having Charvel make me guitars in the custom shop. And it was Mike Shannon, who was the original builder, late 70s, early 80s, doing my guitars. And Mike Tempesta, Mike number two, Mike Tempesta is the artist relationship uh, manager for Charvel Jackson and Eddie Van Halen's line EVH. Right. Sure. So Mike kept calling me and he kept saying, dude, you've got to play this guitar. Um, we've got it in the warehouse. And it turned out Charvel in the year 2007, they brought back all of the luthiers that made all of the late 70s Charvels as a team project. So Grover Jackson, Mike Shannon, and I forgot the other two guys, um, they hand built these guitars literally together as a team. Right. right. And the guitars were supposed to be sold at some outrageous price, like $18,000 a guitar. 
So wow. I'm told not one guitar sold. Obviously, is the price ridiculous, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. However, this one guitar stayed in the warehouse in its case, almost like a coffin, for like nine years. And so Mike basically kept calling me, sent me a picture of it. I'm like, dude, I'm not playing that thing. It looks like someone dumped red paint on it. And so finally, one day I can see this. I was going to be down in the area. And so I went down and he brings the guitar out and I play it. And as soon as I played, I was like, oh my God, it, it plays so well. It plays for you. Wow. You know what I mean? It just, it's insane. It resonates. It has this beautiful, the over tones, these beautiful high harmonics, almost like, like a bell, bell tones just pop out of the guitar. But at the same time, it not only has this beautiful, really nice cut where you can really hear every note picked intricately and articulately, the articulation is very clear, but it also has a really fat sound as well, mainly because it has brass bridge and such. So, you know, I mean, I played it, fell in love with it. And then, you know, to make matters worse, then I plugged in the amp and it was, that was it. I haven't put the guitar down since. We were doing a lot of shows. I think uh, on the Venom tour, we were doing a lot of big, you know, kind of like those stadium festival kind of things. Mm -hmm. And I played that guitar probably 90% of all the shows. It's just amazing. It's one of those magical guitars. Very cool. And, and so now they've brought the price down on it or, or tweaked it a little bit. So like a consumer like myself could go buy it. Is that, is that, no, they, no, they don't. They, they don't. don't. Oh, they no, don't. They no, don't. It's just, okay. Okay. No, the, the so I won't be getting one. In 2000. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I am. I've had so many people ask me about this. So I am talking um, to Charvel and a few other people about maybe doing a signature guitar. Right. Cool. You know, be great. because I mean, there, there are, I also modified the guitar a bit as well. Right. You know, so it's not exactly how it was originally. There have been some, you know, modifications to the guitar. And as far as amps and, uh, you know, do you use, you're using amps in the studio or there's so many bands now I hear they go like direct through different types of, uh, you know, simulators and rack mounts and stuff. How do you record live or I'm sorry, in the uh, studio, I let's start really, with the studio. No, I- Sure. I'm really more of an amp guy. Yeah. You know, with, with Impelitary, we're more of a live band. So we always try to start out tracking stuff live, right? Try to capture us, our live performance, you know, um, and together in the studio if we can. You know, some of the stuff with John, I mean, with John, we basically attract a lot of stuff live ahead of time. Then went back in with John and did a lot of drums where you isolate the drums by themselves and track. Um, but having said that, usually amps are always going to be critical to my sound. So I have a bunch of vintage old Marshalls, right? right. And I use everything from 1973 and earlier, okay. right? So a lot of times, you know, plexis, whatever, you know, to be honest, whatever fits the song, sure. whatever inspires me to play. So that's generally what I use, um, you know, vintage Marshall cabinets. And I have a really nice studio in my home. Um, so, you know, a lot of times I'll run everything through like vintage Neve gear, you know, if I'm at the house, if I'm in a big studio, it's the same thing, same kind of setup, same kind of mic prees. Um, I, I hope I'm not getting too technical on the side, but you know, right. No, no, that's, that's great. That's we look, yeah, cool. Yeah. And, and, and then also now, but there's one other thing, but I do also, there will be times where I will blend, I'll grab like an ax effect and I will blend like another model, just if I need a little bit thicker sound. Right. Or some more, right. you know, a little bit more ambient tone to blend in. I definitely do that as well. 
cool. And you obviously have main, maintained so much of your technique or all your technique. I mean, you sound just fantastic on this new record. How much practicing? Obviously, when you were younger and you were learning, you know, we, we've read the interviews in the magazines that you spent 10 to 12 hours some days practicing. Do you still have to practice at such a, a level or can you do a lot less practicing and just kind of maintain where you're at? What's your practice schedule like? I I have to be honest. I play guitar every day because I love it. So I don't even think anymore about the practice ritual or the routine. You know, I mean, I have guitars everywhere in my house, outside of my pool, upstairs, downstairs, studio. You, it's just guitars everywhere. And for me, I just, I love playing guitar. So I'm, I always am playing every day, some point of the day. And I don't know, I don't sit there and say did I play for seven hours today or so I don't, I, I guess maybe I'm past that point in my career where I really think about how long I do it. Or even if, if I do need it, I don't know what it would be like if I stopped. Right. And said, Hey, I'll come back to this in a right. year. You know, I, would it, would I still be able to maintain it? I, I think probably not. Yeah. I think the fact that I play every day, it is important because muscle memory is a good yeah. Person, all guitar players know this. You do something in repetition, you do it so often. I mean, there are times, I'm not kidding, um, you'll be playing. As a matter of fact, I will never forget this. We were doing Barcelona, Spain um, on the Venom Tour, which was about two years ago. Um, you know, typical big festival, Iron Maiden, I think, was headlining. And, you know, we're playing and, and we're having a blast. There's like 35,000 kids and they're all rocking with you. And I think I remember coming off stage laughing, not remembering. There's one song where I played the solo, but I was thinking about something completely different. Yeah. Like, oh, man, we can make our flight to the Germany show or whatever. And you realize, and, but you play the solo perfectly. And you're like, how did that happen? That's muscle memory. Gotcha. gotcha. You're not thinking about it. Your hands and your body is just naturally doing in time perfectly. So I think that's important about repetition and playing every day. Sure. Sure. And I also wanted to touch upon the 30 year anniversary of the Stand in Line album going back to 1988. Wow. I mean, it blows my mind that so much time has passed since that album came out. Any memories of going into the, the studio or working on that record? Of course, you had Graham Bonnet, uh, who was a really big name guy at that time, still is uh, on that record with you. Any memories of that album that you could share with us? Sure. Well, you know, I, I've had, especially for some reason on this promo cycle, we've had a lot of those questions about Stan in line. Um, I'll say this, Graham Bonnet and Pat Torpy, God rest his soul. I love those guys on that record. You know, Chuck, the bass player, all those guys. I think they sound fantastic. They did a great job. For me, when I look back, Stand in Line, I'm really grateful to be a part of that that group of people to have created that song because we play that live and kids go nuts. It's just been really kind of a staple. Right. Um, however, having said that, I'll be honest, this was the problem with Stand in Line. If anybody really knows anything about our band, they know our very first album was called the Impelitary Black EP. And that was, it had songs like Lost in the Rain, Burning. And, you know, we got we cemented our sound, you know, we kind of figure out who we wanted to be. And if I listen back, that really sounds kind of like Iron Maiden or Judas Priest on steroids with, you know, guys like John McLaughlin and Al Demiola doing the solos or right. whatever. So having said that at, at heart, me kind of like the 15 year old kid in me, really, that was kind of what I wanted to do. 
And Rob and was with record, you on that we, too, right? He did oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's Rob Rock, a drummer named Lonnie Silva, who was fantastic. And so, you know, we make this record and all of a sudden everybody around the world, especially in the metal community, were digging this thing. I mean, Kerrang! Magazine gave us five stars out of five stars. They were covering us heavily. The guitar magazines were starting to get into us. And we were making a lot of noise and Japan really started to get into us. And then Rob Rock quits. And I'm like, I had just signed a deal with Sony and Relativity and I owed them a record wow. and I didn't know what to do. And I remember Graham Bonnet years earlier had called me to see if I'd be interested in replacing Yngwie in his band Alcatraz. Now at that time, in all sincerity, I was much too young. I think Steve I got the gig who was, yep. you know, more suited for them. Um, and also they were a lot older than me. So, but Graham and I stayed friends and I went on to cultivate, you know, and grow, you know, kind of mature into what I become. And so, after I guess Alcatraz had disbanded, um, I needed a singer. And I remember, I don't know why, I think I just picked up the phone one day and just said it was out there. And I called Graham and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this with me? He was like, absolutely, he's in. I said, okay. But now began the problem. I realized, oh my God, I can't write, you know, I can't do like Iron Maiden on steroids with Graham's voice. Right. I didn't think it would fit. So I was like, how am I going to do this? I was pretty confused to be honest. And every guy in the band that we assembled, I mean, Graham's about 18 years older than me. You know, the, the band was way older than me. So emotionally it was really difficult for me to relate to everybody. At the same time, I'm trying to figure out, well, how do I write with this? So yeah. I basically, someone told me, I don't know what it was, it was a business colleague or whatever suggested, well, why instead of doing the impellitary more, you know, you know, speed metal kind of stuff, why don't you do something more that would be more of a tribute to what Graham had done? So we went down that road, you know, and it acquired a lot of stuff where I was listening to stuff he had done. And, you know, looking back in hindsight, I'm grateful we did the record. I mean, the record got us on MTV. I really think Graham is a huge um, I think he's owed a lot of gratitude for the reason we became so big in Japan and places like that. Right. Um, so, but like I say, I mean, my memories of it, I'm grateful that I did stand in line. I'm grateful, you know, that it got us known, but it was also emotionally a very difficult time because I really don't like the record. You know, I like yeah. three songs on the record, but when I listen, I go, this is not impellitary. I mean, if you listen to like our new record, the nature of the beast or the one before that venom, answer to the master or where all began the impellatory black EP. None of those sound anything like stand in line. Yeah. So that's kind of my memories. You know, the other thing too, is I remember when they mixed it, they buried my guitar in reverb, my solos, and I hated it. So it's kind of a love hate relationship. Right. With that record. I have grateful moments. I think Graham Bonnet killed it. And you're, you know, he is, I, I mean, I, I honestly want people to understand this. Graham Bonnet is one of the greatest metal vocalists out there, period. You know, some people say negative things about him, but I'll tell you, I've worked with some amazing guys, Glenn Hughes, you know, I've been around Dio plenty of times and I respect guys I can sing. And I'll tell you when Graham opens his mouth, especially when we did stand in line, he was 38 or 39 years old. It, it, just very few human beings can do that. Right. I mean, he'll go into an area where most men have to go into falsetto and their voices get weak. He doesn't go into falsetto and he hit outrageously high notes, but the power of like, have you ever heard a lion roar at a zoo? Yeah. You know, that's that guy's voice. There are very few human beings that can do it. People don't even realize he actually replaced Dio in rainbow. Yep. You know, Absolutely. I mean, just think about what they were looking for. So, and he had such anyway, a unique why, sound to his voice too. I think it, just the color of his voice—it's like no one can 
go near that. You know, it's uh, definitely, definitely great singer. Yeah, Mark, and you know, and that that's the key, I think, for all musicians, whether you're a guitar player, singer, gosh, even a drummer. It's like really finding an identity. And when you listen to Graham, you're like, oh, yes, this guy, who sounds like him? Who can do what he does? You know, when he's on, right, when he's on, it's amazing. So, you know, that was it. Some of, some of the darker periods, I will tell you, there were a lot of alcohol issues, big time. Right, okay. That really deterred us on that record. So it was very difficult to make during that period of time. I mean, I think Grammy would fess up to that, you know. So that was it. You know, that's kind of my memory of Stand in Line. But I look back, and I'll tell you, we play Stand in Line, and on the previous tour, you know, we're playing that, and every kid in the audience, you just look out, it's a sea of people, and they're singing along to every word, you know, they're, you know, mimicking the solo or whatever, you know, and it's, you just tell it touched a lot of people. So I am going to be forever grateful for that. And at what point after that record does Rob Rock come back in the band? So after Stand in Line, we basically spent a little time trying to get onto another label and um, trying to think how this evolves. Oh, I know what I did. I stopped the band and I started a project with Glenn Hughes. We were going to do a band together. I worked with that for about four months, but it never went anywhere. So I stopped and Rob basically comes back in at this point. I think it's around 1990 or 91. And um, we got signed with JVC Victor, who, believe it or not, here we are how many years later and we're still on the same label which is if you think about it in terms of a contract that is so abnormal to be on a label yeah. for so long right so um it was around 90 and really where we we kind of realized we need to go back to the impelitary black ep and continue on we did a, an ep called victim of the system and in japan it just blew up it was really everybody got really excited and it reminded me kind of like you know, we're back doing a lot of the really fast technical stuff, a lot of uh, queen orchestrated vocals, but it's definitely metal. And so we follow that up immediately with a record called Answer to the Master. And in Japan, I think we sold like 100,000 records in the first day of release. It was something wow. insane. <laughs> first and day. Wow. at that point we knew. And yeah, and from with Rob, at that point, we really had recaptured a lot of, of our original fan base, but we weren't doing anything in the U.S., it was pretty much, for the most part, everything was done in Japan, right? Occasionally, we do a deal with Europe, um, but but that was it, you know. So Rob came in, and we did a few records, and then I think it was up until the point of like 2002, where he decided to take a little bit of a break, right? And Graham came back in, which is another story, right? Um, so, but sorry, this is a long answer for you originally asking me. Yeah, <laughs> when did he come no, back? No, in? No, no, 1990, around 90 or 91, right? Cool. And the new record, of course, Rob Rock back uh, with you. He's been with you since what was so he, uh, Rob left. And then what, when did he come back? It was like late 90s. Well, we do. So, um, well, let me think about this. So we he comes back in around 90 or 91. Right. We have Victory of the System, Answer the Master. Then we do Screaming Symphony with Michael Wagner. We then do Eye of the Hurricane. Crunch is. Oh, OK. So we do a record called Crunch in the year 2000, which is one of my favorite records we've done just crazy metal and then around 2001 i think rob decides hey he wants to take a break and do some solo records and so he stops this point i realize i want to try one more time with graham bonnet so in the year 2002 i bring graham back in except this time i do impellatory music my way right you know speed metal shredding all stuff but we have graham sing his way over it so we did that 
it did really well, especially in like Japan and parts of Europe. Um, and then we did that for about two years. It was always meant to be just kind of like a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, we brought in another guy for kind of a, it was kind of a parody record. It was a lot of fun, but it was not meant to be a long term. I think Rob returns around 2000, 2005, 2005 right. or 2006. We do a record called Wicked Maiden. And ever since he's been in. Gotcha. And the new record again. I've got to work my way through that. <laughs> right. No, I love I love hearing the uh, <laughs> the history of it and the the whole chrono- chronological order of it. Uh, again, the new record, The Nature of the Beast, is out now, and it just sounds fantastic. I know our, our listeners are going to love it. it. It's up on iTunes, Spotify. You can buy the CD on Amazon. We'll have links up in today's show notes. And Chris, before I let you go, one final question. A very general question. When you look back over your long career, what are one or two of the highlights of your career that kind of uh, jump to the top? Well, I think when we were getting played on MTV, especially when MTV was really relevant, it was like, what, 25 million households. That was pretty cool. You know, you're thinking the kid, I mean, I grew up without, you know, I mean, I grew up kind of as an orphan. I didn't have parents. And so to have gone from really, you know, kind of struggling in life to having a pretty nice existence, that was a big moment. Um, and I'll tell you, every day I do something new. I got to be honest, when we, when we completed the nature of the beast, listening back what we had just achieved or accomplished, another highlight and knowing how fast we're moving forward when we should really be dead, we should be corpses. And all of a sudden we're really getting embraced in a big way right now. That to me is really cool. So it's another highlight. Awesome. Cool. And again, yeah, the album sounds fantastic. The nature of the beast, Chris and Pelletieri, it's a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, sir. Well, Mark, again, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And the best of luck to you. We hope we, uh, we get some shows in the States. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, Chris. Thank you. Mark, you're welcome. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Take care.
Sabbath cover right there. Symptom of the Universe by Impelitary. Go buy their new album. That song is on there. It's great stuff. And without further ado, let's get right into my interview with Jake E. Lee, legendary guitar player. This song is brand new. It's called Havana. Go buy this song on iTunes, download it on Spotify, listen to it on YouTube, Music Premium. This is by the Red Dragon Cartel, Havana, followed by my interview with Jake E. Lee. Yeah. 
is Jake there? This is Jake. This is Mark. Yes, it is. Jake, how are you? I'm, uh, well, I'm Viejo y Casado. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure what that means, but... Uh... <laughs> Old and tired. Old and tired. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning it in every language. That was Spanish. I got you. Eventually, I'll get to Klingon, and I'll be able to say it to anybody. Right, right on. Cool. Well, the new album sounds great. We're talking about the new Red Dragon Cartel album. And is it Patina or Patina? Uh, patina. 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 Yeah, yeah. It's... um. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm surprised uh, more people don't uh, aren't familiar with the word, but I guess. Uh, I uh, yeah, I guess it's not used that often, unless you watch a lot of uh, uh, home building shows and right or an- antique shows. <laughs> right on. Well, the the album has a very different feel and sound than the self-titled Red Dragon Cartel album from a few years back. So I wanted to talk to you about that. Were you approaching it from a totally different uh, creative place? I know there were obviously some different players involved this time, but can you talk about maybe the contrast between the two albums? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think... um well, the first record was, uh, it, uh, I wasn't even sure I was going to make a record. I was, uh, enticed into trying it, uh, through Kevin Churko. And, uh, it, it basically that record was done from ideas that I'd had over the last, uh, 10, 12 years, um, that I hadn't, you know, been publicly making music, but I still was privately. Uh, and basically those ideas were, um, uh, guitar parts. I wrote the music and, uh, would record it against a click track, um, with no other musicians present. And, uh, then, then we bring a drummer in, then we bring a bass player in and, and a singer that seemed uh, appropriate for the song. So it was, uh, it was much more of a, um, um, piecemeal, process right. whereas the new record um was done i i knew if i was going to do another record uh i wanted to do it the old school way um have the band present uh i i i come up with some music and and we work on it as a band and uh it makes it more it it makes the whole album sound more cohesive i think yeah. uh and and yeah, the writing process, we did it that way. And, and because we did it that way, the songs I think are really going to be, um, really come to life when we, uh, go on tour. The, uh, the first record we could only do, uh, maybe half of it because, you know, different singers and, and not fitting the way we were, uh, the band, the way the band ended up being. And, um, and just, uh, the, the production process, there was some stuff that really couldn't be replicated live. So on this record, I'm just happy that I, I'm pretty sure we can do every single song. Um, because we wrote it that way. We wrote it as a band and, and it, uh, I feel like that's what people are hearing when they're, when they're relating it to uh, Badlands, because I don't think it really sounds like Badlands, but 
because you know the same guitar player same guy writing the music and the and the process i think the process and the production i think is what people are hearing because it it was done in the manner that uh i i worked in badlands and it the yeah, the, the record sounds more um, organic, I think, is a good word. Uh, a little more honest, maybe. And um, uh, I I think that's the, the main difference between the two records. Although that's there's a lot of differences there. I mean, Yeah, and I know. mean, I think the, the word organic is a really good description for the album. And also for the Badland records, you know, I mean, they, they, they had that organic feel. And if, if anything... <laughs> You know, besides the fact that it, like you said, it's the same guitar player and, and one of the same songwriters, I think that that that, that realness to it uh, comes through. Yeah, yeah, because I've I've seen on on the two songs that we've released so far in the comments. Um, yeah, a lot of people are saying Badlands, and I think that's what they recognize. Because uh, you know, honestly, I, I I don't think it sounds like Badlands. Uh, not strictly speaking, but uh, I think yeah, I think it's the um, the the process that sounds the same. So Darren uh, James Smith, he was involved with some of the songs on the first album, not all of them, but he was then out of the band for a while, and now he's back, and everything is, I guess it sounds like everything's vibing well with him, and you guys are getting along all right, and everything seems to be uh, moving forward as planned. Yeah, yeah. It seems like everything's going well. Right. You know, you, you you never know. But he was, I, I would like to clarify that he was never actually out of the band. I, I never fired him. He never quit. Okay. But we did have a disagreement about certain things. And um, since we're coming up with a, a new leg of the tour, uh, and I had to find a new bass player also, I thought it would be fun just to have other singers come out and do a certain amount of dates, you know, uh, five or six dates each. They were never the singer of Red Dragon Cartel. They were just a substitute until Darren and I worked our shit out. And, um, but yeah, I think, um, I, I, think everything's going to work out just fine. Cool. And Anthony Esposito is in the fold, who a lot of us know from, well, a lot of different things. George uh, George Lynch's Lynch Mob, of course, and he played with Ace Frehley for a while. Have you known Anthony for a long time? I mean, because, you know, when I think of the late 80s, early 90s, two bands that I used to listen to a lot were, of course, Lynch Mob and Badlands. Did you know him from back in those days? Um, yeah. Yeah, I did. We, um... But I didn't, you know, I was, it was a casual, uh, relationship. I, I'd see him occasionally and, and, um, we always got along. Um, I, how I got him was through his son, really, because oh, okay. his son, Tyler, uh, was the engineer on the first Red Dragon Cartel record. And, uh, we became really good friends. So, and he also plays bass. When I was looking for another bass player, I, I actually called Tyler up wow. and, um, asked him if he'd be interested in doing it uh for various reasons he decided not to probably because everybody was in their 50s and he's in his 20s and why would you want to why would you want (laughs) to subject yourself to all that age um but uh he he said that uh his dad was available and so uh 
Anthony and I talked, and and he ended up being a a godsend. He really uh, tightened the band up, and uh, and just the fact that we recorded uh, at his ranch at Obscene Art Studio, uh, it just worked out beautifully because uh, that way we could we could have the band. Uh, living in the same house and then uh, writing or recording pretty much at any time of the day because he lives out in the middle of nowhere. Is that Pennsylvania? uh, Somewhere in Pennsylvania? Yeah, Yeah. Dillsburg. Okay. Dillsburg, Pennsylvania. And it is is, uh, like it sounds. (laughs) It's very much a Dillsburg. Um, But yeah, that... uh, the fact that Anthony came along is uh, was uh, very fortunate for me. Awesome. You know, the the old Badlands records seem like they're kind of hard to listen to on the streaming services. They're not there. Um, or iTunes. Do you know why that is? Like, why they've never been released in the, the digital streaming format? No. I, I really don't. I've I've heard rumors, and um, I've never personally looked into it. Uh, although I should, because that's a shame. Those Badlands records were really good records. Yeah. And 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 the fact that Ray Gillen's on it, he you know he didn't have that much uh, time to uh, put out a lot of stuff. He is singing on it. He's one of the best singers, I think personally uh in rock oh, yeah. and uh, it's it's a shame that they're not out there uh one of these days i'll i'll look into it i've heard rumors that it was because of uh ray's illness and and that there were people out there who who claimed that uh he made them ill i don't know if that's true or not um but i don't see how that would uh scare you know, Atlantic records into into not doing something that could possibly make them money. So I I can't honestly say why they're not available. Yeah. Badlands back in those times to me as a fan, as somebody who was listening to, you know, I guess what's become to be known as hair metal, you know, with the spandex, the the hairspray and stuff. Badlands was one of the first bands that really made me kind of scratch my head and say, "Wow, there's there's something there's something different here. There's something new." And for for, for not having seen you for a few years, I mean, I saw you with Ozzy, but but you really came out with a different look, a different sound, a different attitude. What what transformed you from your time in Ozzy to where you were at in Badlands a number of years later? How did you transform? Um, there? Yeah, musically, I would say that uh, uh, when I was in Ozzy, and uh, I would, you know. I was responsible for coming up with uh, the bulk of the music. It was a uh, uh, a narrower spectrum that I I could uh, work with. Uh, I would present Ozzy with songs, and uh, sometimes he would uh, he would just he would just he said we're not Frank Zappa. I don't know why he would he would use him specifically, but right. he said we're not Frank Zappa. We're not a blues band. We're a heavy metal band, and I just want to hear heavy metal songs. So when I was out of Ozzy and I I could do whatever I wanted, it felt like there was a whole spectrum of music that I could explore, and uh, it it felt good. So musically, that's why it was different. Um, 
looks wise, he said, uh, you know, I just, uh, really, I just got lazy and didn't cut my hair (laughs) and it got got pretty long. Uh, and, and I did kind of want to distance myself from, uh, like towards the end of my tenure with, uh, Ozzy, he had the, uh, uh, how what was it? Gold sequin bumblebee looking outfit, right. and, and uh, everybody. We were um, we had to use a specific uh, clothing designer in Aussie because personally, I just wanted to wear jeans and and something a leather uh, like like why it was in um, at the S festival. Right. You know, a leather vest and jeans and boots. I that's where I felt comfortable and I didn't feel comfortable with the, all the glitter and glam that, uh, uh, became really popular towards the end of the eighties. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I wanted to distance myself from that and, and be a little more, uh, real. So, yeah. And, and Ray and I, when we first, discussed getting the band together we had we had the same ideas we wanted it to be a little more uh honest and real and and uh get away from the glitz of uh of the whole hair metal thing although we still got lumped in there so right <laughs> you know did, did you recognize that that maybe things were changing musically at that time? I mean, I remember specifically, and I don't know if you remember this, but there was some article, I think it was like in Guitar Player Magazine or one of those magazines, and it was you and Ronnie James Dio listening to music, and I feel like they played a grunge band for you guys, and Ronnie didn't like it, and you did, and and, there were, and it kind of uh, made me scratch my head a little bit that maybe you were on to something you know, that you were on to what the next big thing was going to be before some of the other people were. Do you remember that? Uh, I uh, vaguely, yeah. vaguely, that was a long time ago, but yeah, I really liked grunge. I, I, you know, and it's, I didn't understand why people were so against it. The people that were, you know, uh, used to the eighties music and, and I hate to use the word, but hair metal, it's going right. to stick. Yeah. Uh, uh, they, they really didn't like grunge and I didn't understand it because it was still very, um, grunge is very black Sabbath based and black Sabbath was one of my all time favorite bands. And, and I welcomed it. I, I knew that, uh, towards the end of the whole LA thing, I mean, anybody that could afford a can of hairspray and some pleather pants got signed. Right. Uh, and it really, it, it just became, uh, bloated and, and, and really it, it needed to die. I was, I was sick of it. Maybe I just got sick of it a little bit earlier than everybody else, but it just, it became, um, what started out really great. The whole LA scene, you know, rat Molly crew, um, what started out as a really cool thing almost became a cartoon of itself right. towards the end. And, um, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And when grunge came along, I thought it was just a, a wonderful break from all that. And apparently a lot of other people did too. Yeah. And I mean, for me, like I said, Badlands was almost kind of a bridge to the, the grunge stuff because I felt like you guys had a dirtier sound. It was a more, you know, stripped down look, and and in some ways, it was kind of the the bridge that led me over to 
bands like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. Huh. That's in, that's interesting. I um I'd never heard that before, but yeah, I can see what you're saying. It uh we were um yeah, breaking off a little bit from the norm. Uh not quite as much as grunge, but uh no. I and I appreciate that. I like yeah. that. I like no, that. That's uh, that's the truth. Observation. Man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And obviously your your albums with Ozzy, everyone always talks about them. I just wanted to briefly touch upon uh one thing, you know, Ozzy in his book, it, it really seems to think that Bob Daisley has just been a, a thorn in his side through through the years and he mentions it over and over in his book. And and Bob on the other hand seems to think that he's very much uh, responsible for Ozzy's success back, you know, in those in that era, you were with with uh, with Ozzy. How involved in your eyes was Bob Daisley in the songwriting process? Uh, tremendously, yes, tremendously. Okay. I um, I haven't I haven't read either one of their books, um, but yeah, I uh, Bob when I worked with him on um, Bark of the Moon. He, I would come up with the riffs and, you know, maybe a, the hook, the chorus, the verse, and he, he would come up with all the little pieces, bridges, and just uh, key changes, and let's go somewhere else with this song, because I was kind of more in the uh, L.A. vein, that's, you know, what I grew up in, right. uh, where it's very strictly almost a pop formula, but done heavier, where it's a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, chorus out. That was the way I wrote songs. And Daisley would come up with uh, these really musically interesting parts to break that up, break that pattern up. And um, he, he, for me, for The Bark of the Moon, he was very instrumental and he wrote all the lyrics uh ozzy would come in and he'd have a, a basic melody line he was really good at that just yeah. hearing a song and then getting on the microphone and um and vocalizing a melody line he he was really good at that and but he didn't really sing anything he just kind of saying la 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 and and he would usually come up with the, the title like uh bark of the moon uh it was all just vowels when he first came up with it it was a, na, 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 na. and then when it came to the uh the chorus he'd bark at the moon right. and that's where uh he would come up with the titles the hooks and daisley would have to uh, uh write lyrics around that and he was really good at that um uh say for example uh thank god for the bomb um i mean that was ozzy uh he came up with that and 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 Daisley wrote an intelligent song around that. I would say the same thing with the uh, suicide solution. I wasn't there for that, but I imagine that that was what Ozzy was singing about. And, and to turn that into the obvious from the obvious, uh, of it being about committing, you know, just committing suicide right. where he made it into solution is a liquid suicide being if you drink too much alcohol and uh he's just really clever with that and 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 i would say that daisley was uh, a huge factor 
his playing too. He, I think he's one of the best players there ever was in Farrakh. He's solid and inventive. Um, and like I said, he came up with musical parts that made songs more interesting and he was responsible for the lyrics. So I'm a little surprised that he said Ozzy, uh, just considers him a thorn in his side. Well, then, I mean, I'm putting words in Ozzy's mouth. That's just the the vibe I got from the book. It just his name come up, came up over and over again in the book, and Ozzy seemed frustrated with the amount of lawsuits and and you know, uh, well, legal yeah, from from Bob. Well, yeah, and I I probably side with Bob on that. He um. Uh, from what I understand from everybody that I talked to, uh, the beginning of Blizzard of Oz, it was supposed to be a band that was, uh, you know, they split everything evenly and the band was going to be called Blizzard of Oz. Um, and then, uh, Bob said the first time he realized that that was just going to be the album title and it was going to be underneath, a. Ozzy Osbourne as the artist was uh, when the record came out. (laughs) And that doesn't sound unlike something um, the Osbournes would do. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm sure that, uh, you know, from personal experience, I'm sure that Bob got screwed uh, with his uh, business dealings with them. Uh, What I don't understand is why uh, he kept going back. And yeah. and every time he would get screwed over again and have another lawsuit, um, you know, I uh, how many times do you keep trying to feed the dog that bites you? Yeah. Um, it's uh, so uh, you know Bob's partially to blame for that, but I do know that Ozzy would ask him to come back. It's not like it's not like Bob would pester him and say, let me, let me work with you again. I know that, uh, Ozzy would seek him out because he was such a contributing factor to the first two albums. I know he brought him back for bark in the moon just so he could, uh, use Bob's resources. And, right. um, right. yeah, I think I answered the question. Yeah, somewhere absolutely. In there. Absolutely. Now, recently there were rumors going around when it was kind of known that Warren D. Martini was not going to be participating with, with Rat anymore, that you were going to be coming in, and that obviously did not happen. Were those just rumors, or were you actually in contact with Stephen about potentially doing some shows with Rat? No, no. That was never... That that never came up. That was never going to happen. Um, I, that all came from Bobby Blotzer. Right. Okay. Uh, from a, a specific interview. And... And, you know, Bob, nobody really cares what Bob has to say. <laughs> oh, here I am bad-mouthing another musician again. But nobody does. He he went out with a version of Rat that was not Rat. And and through people in the industry, I know, he was, he was paid a lot of money. And uh, club owners were very unhappy with him. Um because they thought they were hiring Rat to play. And then it would just be a band that Bobby Blotzer put together doing cover songs, really. And and so nobody... I think Bobby just made that up yeah. so that uh, it would be a talking point. So it would be a headline. And uh, 
and and it did. It became that. But yeah, uh, I get along with Stephen all right, mainly because I'm not in a band with him. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> I was in rap before, and the reason I quit was Stephen. Um, but I I get along with him fine. But he knows that I wouldn't rejoin Rat, um, and he knows that Warren and I uh, have been best friends forever, and I would never take his place in a band. It's And nobody should, really. Yeah. It's not Rat without Warren, I and agree. Um, I agree. It's, uh, it's sad. It's sad what, what Rat is today. Okay. So Red Dragon Cartel, the new album is about to drop. Will you guys be going on tour to uh, support this? Yes, yes. So far, we have a we have a tour lined up that starts in uh, late February. Awesome. Um, and it, it starts basically in the southwest of the states, and we're cutting a swath through up to the northeast. Um, basically, I I don't think we're doing anything in Florida. I don't think we're doing anything in Seattle. So, uh, and it it'll be about a month, maybe five weeks tour before we go to Japan. And then we're trying to get Europe after that. Um, after that, I think uh, it would be nice to uh, do another tour of the States, but this time uh, starting in Florida and cutting our way up to Seattle. Right. So uh, that's that's the plan so far. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope you get through the uh, New York or New Jersey area. I'd love to see you guys. Oh, no. Yeah, we definitely are. Okay. I know. Cool. I know we're playing Iridium. Um, oh, awesome! That's, in, right, in, that's uh, the only one I can think of. Yeah, it's a very guitar-oriented. Yeah, yeah, and it's very guitar-oriented. But I've seen videos from there, and uh, I don't know how we're gonna. It looks like everybody's turned down very low. It looks like a really yeah. small room, more of a dining experience and watch a band. But we play really loud, and uh, we'll see how that goes over. Okay, cool. I'll be there. I've, I've seen many shows there, including Les Paul. It was the first show I ever saw there, the the late Les Paul. Um, and oh, yeah, that, I wish I could have seen him there. That, that would have been awesome. Yeah, at that You're time lucky. it was more a jazz club, but they lately have been getting more loud rock bands, so I think uh i think you guys will do fine there and it's a great great room you'll you'll like playing yeah. there. yeah for sure Jake, well manhattan's just a cool place anyway but. yeah right in the <laughs> middle of manhattan the Times square area there so jake it's been uh, a pleasure talking to you i've been a longtime fan and i just want to thank you for joining us here on talking metal oh no it was it was definitely my pleasure thank you
Wasted by the Red Dragon Cartel. That's going back a number of years to their first self-titled album. Features my friend Paul Diano, ex-Iron Maiden, on vocals there. Sounding great. And thanks to Jakey Lee for joining us. And a big shout out to Paul Diano, who's... Oh boy, you know, he's had a rough time lately. He's suffering with some some illness and has been back and forth to the doctor. And, and we just love Paul Diano and... Those first two Maiden albums, I think, are among Iron Maiden's best, and I just hope Paul can uh, can find some, you know, happiness in his life and and get some some get back right on track because you know he's got problems with his knees, I think, and he's just he's really been struggling lately, going to the doctor a lot. And Paul, we love you, man. I hope I hope you're well, and I hope. We get music from you again someday soon, whether that's just being on stage again or whether that is uh, making a recording. Let's all send our thoughts and prayers over to Paul Diano. Dude, we love you. All right. And on that note, let's round things out with a great little chat with a guy named Mark Hunter. We had a little difficulty connecting. I think his cell phone battery died or something. So anyways, he uh, it's a shorter interview, but it's definitely interesting. I had to run off at the end of the interview to pick up my son from school. So, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a short chat, but it's good. And not that short. Like, what, like at least 15 minutes. Here we go. This is uh, my interview with Mark Hunter from Chimera. And uh, let's listen to what he has to say. And let's please go watch his documentary, which is really well done. A nice, nice uh, listen. I'm going to try to remember to link it through today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. Please use our Amazon links to support what we do. And uh, let's check this uh, interview out. Then I will come back and I'll say goodbye to you guys. Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and calling in on the line, we have Mark Hunter from Chimera. Mark, I just watched the film that you put together with with Nick, the director, who we'll talk about down again. Really moving, great stuff. I mean, you do a brilliant job, and you and Nick, in tying the band's story, your story, uh, and this this discussion about mental illness all together with with some great music so i I was really impressed honestly good stuff awesome yeah i appreciate that thank you very much and i guess let's let's talk about mental illness because it's a it's a big part of of this film and again the film is called down again and it's you know, times have changed and people talk about mental illness more than we used to, but there is still kind of a taboo attached to it where people don't like to admit it. People don't like to come out and talk about their their mental problems. And one fact you throw out there in the film is that, you know, 25 percent of us will have a mental health issue at some point in, in our life. And, um, you know. Knowing that number, it shouldn't really be a taboo thing to talk about anymore, right? Yes, I agree. I think that partly that stems from there's so many different types of mental illness, and you can have people that are maybe more extreme than others. And um, I guess for lack of a more delicate way to uh, approach it, people just don't want to admit like they might, you know, somebody might think they're crazy, so to speak, or or illness, the word, like maybe that means they're suffering in a way. And there's a, there's a strength to it that's really not talked about. And both Nick and I have uh, 
bipolar, and there's different forms of bipolar. His uh, is not the same as mine, where with 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 me, um, it'll give me uh, crazy, like almost superhero drive and focus and almost this um, cockiness, for lack of a better word, that I can do anything. And it's, I I don't consider that a a hindrance by any means. I think that's what helped me, for lack of a better word, be crazy enough to go towards the music industry. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, whereas others are like, well, I better play a safe route, go to college, get a career, you know, and settle down. But it's not really what they wanted to do. And what I really wanted to do was get on stage and and play music and nothing was going to stop me. And this this drive I had to sit in front of a computer for 12 hours a day and then practice my instruments for the, the remaining, um, that was very much a blessing. And the downside is, I guess, when there isn't a project and when there is, or maybe you just get home from a tour or maybe uh, you've just uh, completed a, a, a huge moment in your life that took a while to get there, there's these... Uh, just as much drive as I have is just as much of a low. So it's right. I, I'm not motivated. I don't want to get out of bed. I have no desire to create anything and I have no motivation. So there's this, that's, that's the bad side. And, and where well, I guess when being in a band, you have so much downtime and yeah. you get that high, I guess, for so to speak from playing the show. And then the next day you're almost hung over from it. And I guess that's, how I would how I would describe it, and um, but that that's through my whole life. So it, you know, with music, it actually got a little worse because there would be these ex- extremely stressful situations, and uh, the the lows the lows would be harder to get out of. And right. uh, but it also pushed me to get help on to figure out how I could not be as down. So. And when did you actually come to terms or, or get diagnosed with, with bipolarism? Is that, is that something you learned through therapy or through, how did you discover that you're bipolar? Yeah. So my doctor um, had a suspicion. Well, we, we had been treating me for depression and it's not the same exact thing. So some of the medications that we would try were either ineffective or would actually exasperate symptoms. And, um, you know, I just would tell him that I would be experiencing these low lows. And then one time just through talking, I was in a hypomanic state. And that's the type of bipolar that I have is more like hypomania, which they consider functional bipolar. Um, another good way to call it is CEO disease. <laughs> right. Um, you know, people like Steve Jobs were hypoman- hypomanic, uh, Thomas Edison. And no, I'm not trying to put myself in that <laughs> right. type of uh, genius <laughs> right, right. Uh, level of, uh, but it's just, that's, you know, you can have a great life and be, bi- be bipolar and be, you know, very productive in society. So, uh, but long story short, he heard me talking and I was in a manic state and, He's like, oh, dude, you have hypomania. And I'm pretty sure. So he's like, we've been treating depression. So we uh, did a little more extensive testing. And um, so I guess uh, my symptoms have been around as long as I can remember. I've had anxiety and 
and whatnot since I was a child, but uh, they started to progress a little more severely in my teens and then again in my 20s. So by the time I uh, recently is the hypomania, probably in the last five years. Okay. But yeah, we were kind of treating the wrong, we were putting the, you know, the wrong, wrong remedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the film again, down again is, uh, where's the place where people are going to be able to see this? I mean, this is a short, I guess I'd call it a short film, right? It's about 30 minutes long. Um, yeah, short documentary. So is it going to be on, on demand on Netflix? Is it where, where can people plan to see this? Well, the uh, we're it's going to be free, so all you'll need is an internet connection. You don't need to awesome. subscribe to anything or be on a provider. Everything is uh, just going to be on the website Vimeo, and I'm sure people are familiar with that. But if they're not, it's kind of like a YouTube, but a little bit more geared towards creators. So this is why the director, Nick, um, it's a little more advantageous for him to be on, on Vimeo uh, as a director than it, than it is on YouTube. Right on, and you mentioned Nick. His his last name Cava Cavalier is that his last Cavalier, name? Yeah, Cavalier, yeah, exactly. Nick, Nick Cavalier. Cavalier, and he does just a brilliant job with. I mean, even when you're getting you're in the barber shop there with the the close up of the of the scissors on the comb cutting your hair. I mean, there's just some real <laughs> art, artsy and and uh, well done um, editing and uh, you know just beautifully shot. So uh, again, it's a great watch, and I really hope people can can see this on Vimeo you mentioned when will it go live on Vimeo I know I saw it on Vimeo but I had like some sort of uh, password yeah the secret password yeah so yeah everyone will have access to it on World Mental Health Day which is October 10th okay and um, yeah soon everyone can watch it and easily share it and that would be great if so the more people that see it and the more people that see it outside of the, the hard rock and heavy metal community, the better, because then that, that makes them aware of our scene as well. So. Right on. And by the time we get this posted, it will be uh, after October 10th, which means the listeners can, can see it right now. So good, good yeah, stuff. Great. And the the one one story that you know you touch upon there's there's so much stuff jam packed into this uh, short documentary but I loved hearing Emily's story can you talk a little bit about who she is and and how you got to know her yeah Emily is a fan of our band that has gone through a lot of hardships with medical conditions and she's had leukemia I want to say twice and. Um, has beaten it and gone through a lot of just a lot of hardships and she utilizes our music and heavy metal in general to help her through not only these crazy medical uh, anomalies that she has to go through but she also has uh, depression and, and mental health and it's, it's to be expected when you're when you're uh, you know given a, a sentence of leukemia so um, I met her by chance, and um, that was through one of our producers. He basically said, hey, my my friend's niece is a huge fan. Would you sign a poster for her And in Chicago? So okay. when we played Chicago one year, I did that. And we and then I found her online just because she tagged me, uh, saying like, wow, thanks. You know, the singer of Chimera sent me this. She was in the hospital at the time, so... 
that was really cool to see. And I, I just started following her and we put out a submission for people that wanted to share their stories. And I had no idea that she was the person that Nick chose. That was completely by chance, completely random. They had uh, well over 50 submissions for people that wanted to be in the film, and he chose her. And uh, I thought that was pretty amazing and one of those weird universe moments where it's like, wow, it's, it, the, the universe is so massive, but yet right. so small that it would they would pick her. So. And in the film, again, it's called Down Again. The the there's a, a little story about your your Guns and Roses pin getting getting pulled off of you and I guess uh, stolen from you. But uh, Guns and Roses that was I think the first time I ever heard the words bipolar because I remember there was an article in Rolling Stone magazine about Axel and and they had uh, mentioned that he. Had, was bipolar i think years later he denied it but that was the first time i heard those words and and just i guess my point is that artists seem to or or people with mental issues seem to be drawn to art and that's something you you touch upon in 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 the film why is that in is there i mean i know it's a big answer but but simply put why why are people with with mental health issues drawn to music and art in general for me i think it's just with my experience i I see things that just don't seem right and i and there's not conversations being had about them maybe it's internal maybe it's external and then there's not really anyone to talk to about it and so there has to be a way to express it or just get get rid of those thoughts that are in the, in my head or stop thinking about anything that could be negative and turn it and try to turn that into a positive so you know when i was young i would i found that playing an instrument or maybe escaping into a movie and then i wanted to create those types of things like or excuse me, listening to music uh, and watching a movie. And then I wanted to do those things. So I wanted to, to, to learn how to uh, play, play instruments and, and go to uh, and do my, make concerts myself. And I found that that was even more therapeutic than listening. Right. So, um, you know, maybe I, I wasn't the best player, but it still gave me so much satisfaction, even more. You know, I would listen to Slayer like wow this gives me such a, a jolt and a great feeling inside then if i would like pick up a guitar and play the riffs it, it was even more magical or if i would scream along in the car there was just you know there was a more of a connectivity to it even sure. more so than just listening to it so i think that's what it was for me um just being able to it, it was just it had more of an impact right on and are you still, I know you do have the photography, which you go into in the film, but are, are you still creating music? Do you, do you still have this need to express yourself musically? I have a need, but I haven't, I haven't written a single thing because I'm under contract and I don't want to be under contract. Okay. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> there, so there you if, go. if I write something, somebody else owns it. So when I'm at a point where no one owns it, but me. Right. Then I'll be. Uh, but yes, there is a there is a dying need for it, and I I can't wait to pick up an instrument again. Awesome. Well, that's great to hear. And when you do that, you know, I realize it's down the road. But would that be 
on your own with a with a new project or would you consider getting back together with the guys to do something like where where do you view yourself going musically down the road I'm extremely open to any possibility. I would love to make music with Kamara again. And if, you know, that doesn't work out, then I'm perfectly content making music on my own. Or, hey, why not both? Very good. Thank you, Mark, for talking with us today. We're going to have the the film, which is called Down Again. It'll be embedded in our show notes on TalkingMetal.com, so you can watch it right there, guys. It's a great watch. I really enjoyed it. Trip by Kamira here on Talking Metal. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the program. Big thanks to all our guests, Jake E. Lee, Chris Impelitari, and Mark Hunter for speaking with me and providing some fun, fun interviews. You know, I love I love doing this, guys. I love being with you. And you give me a platform to do what I love. Thanks to the PayPal donations, the Patreon supporters. And the people using the Amazon links, we're actually breaking even here and even having a few uh, extra dollars for some coffee, some beer, 
So it's coffee this morning. I'm recording this in the morning. And uh, yeah, so keep up the support. Please support me on Patreon. I love that. Visit TalkingMetal.com and check out the show notes for this episode where you'll have everything you need to know about supporting the show and also the guests that were on this show. Like if you want to watch the Down Again documentary, it's there. I don't know if you can hear that. That is my kids screaming in the back. And it's driving me nuts. I'm using this new program, uh, Adobe Edition, to record the podcast now, which I love. But the monitor... It's like an it's like a second delay. I can't figure out how to get use rid of that. I just uh, I don't know. All right, that's useless information you didn't need to know. But um, yeah, thanks guys. You guys are awesome. And again, thanks to all our, our Patreon people. We will give you a shout out again soon on air here. You leave us a five star review on iTunes. I'd appreciate that. And check out YouTube Music Premium. All right, thanks guys. We'll talk to you next time.